I've opened my Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 30 and invite you to do the same with your copy of God's book. 1 Samuel 30. Strengthened in the Lord is the title of this study, a study that's going to take us through this week and next. I had some challenges and even uh, trying to get through to the portion I wanted today, so, but we have another week to finish things up. Last week, uh, I don't know if you recall, on Mother's Day, I began um, my time in the pulpit with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I'd like to do that again today, although it's not about mothers this time. This was a sermon that Spurgeon preached June 26, 1881. He preached it on this passage, 1 Samuel 30, particularly verse 6, where it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Spurgeon says this, I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Thoughts about how God uses our adversities, our darkest moments as part of his sovereign plan. David, as we read of him in this chapter, finds himself in some very dark clouds again. And it's ironic because if you were here last week, we saw how God got David out of dark clouds. And he leaves one storm and enters into another one. Faced with terrifying losses, David finds strength in God by seeking his will and acting on his word. I'd like us to read uh, this chapter, and again, we'll only make it through a portion of it today. 1 Samuel 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and all the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, 
for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread out over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. We'll stop our reading at this point. The Lord, at his blessing, to the reading of his word and now to the teaching of it. Faced with terrifying losses, David finds strength in God by seeking his will and acting on his word. The story breaks into four parts, which we'll uh, examine these next two weeks. There's a terrible tragedy at Ziklag, followed by spiritual strengthening in God, providential provision for rescue, and then a portion we didn't read, great generosity in sharing. Let's come to the first of those in verses 1 to 6, the terrible tragedy at Ziklag. Uh, I have uh, broken up these six verses into three things that all rhyme, and they all have ash in them. <laughs> the first one is black ash. Their city is burned in verses 1 to 3. Look with me again at uh, verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, carried them off and went their way. Remember where David was in the previous chapter. David was up in the sort of the uh, middle of Israel. He was uh, up in the Sharon Plain at Afek, that spot in the north there, that's where the Philistines were assembling their troops. They were preparing for a massive campaign that was aimed at cutting Israel in half. David was in that awkward spot of possibly having to fight against Saul. But the Lord gave him a sovereign alibi, and King Achish said, you're not wanted, 
go back home. And so back home they went, all the way down to Ziklag. 55 to 60 miles they walk down that coastal plain. Easily would have taken three days. Uh, most armies on foot moved something like 15 to 20 miles a day. So sometime late in that third day they, they come home. They come here to Ziklag, sitting in the plain. This is just the ruins of it that are left. It's in the southern end of the Philistine territory. Uh, and uh, what a terrible sight they find. It's in ruins now, and it was in worse ruins when they came upon it. They find everything just torched and all the good stuff gone and all the people gone. And, and Now the author tells us in this verse who did it. He tells us it was the Amalekites. But we don't get David's perspective until verse 3. David doesn't know who did it. Someone did it. The Amalekites were a very troublesome bunch for Israel. You know, the Amalekites were related to the Israelites. They were descended from one of Esau's sons. And when Israel was coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites infamously attacked them and made themselves arch enemies of the Israelites. And throughout the centuries, they made a menace of themselves. David, a couple chapters earlier, chapter 27, had been making raids on the Amalekites where he was practicing the black flag, killing everyone. Here, they come and get their revenge, although they do things a little differently. The Amalekites kept coming back and back and back. You know, David dealt with them, but he wasn't done with them. And there are an awful lot of things like that in life, where you feel like you've dealt with something, but the problem comes back again and again. Now, there are small things for which that's true. There are, there are chores around the house that are just like endless attacks. <laughs> you know, they just, they won't stay, things stay clean, you know. I'm not speaking about those kinds of things. There are few things in life, though, that are one and done. Our eternal salvation is one of them, thank God. Jesus made a once-for-all sacrifice that has secured everlasting life for those who trust in Him. But our struggles and our trials are often not one and done. There are some things that we face again and again and again. It's part of living in a fallen world. And the grief that David and his men face is an example of that. The Amalekites don't practice the black flag, killing everyone like David had been doing, but they did the next worst thing. They took everybody captive. You can see that here's a stone relief of the Assyrians in a later time leading away women and children as captives. All of the able men of war had gone with David up north leaving only women and children and those who were unfit to fight. And when the marauders came to the city, there was no one to defend them. And they carried them off. The, the Hebrew term is they drove them off, the same term used to drive cattle. I guess there's a bright spot that they weren't massacred, but they were taken probably to become slaves and then be sold as slaves. Maybe a fate worse than death. The feeling of David and his men is described there in the third verse. Look at the third verse. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Here's the same story told, but notice what's missing in this verse. No mention of who did it. The Amalekites are the unknown enemy. They just see what they did. 
They have a little bit of information and lots of shock. You've been in situations like that, haven't you? You've had those pit-in-your-stomach moments of shock, of some discovery of something awful. Some of you have come back to your house to find it on fire. Or maybe you've come back to your home and found that someone has burglarized it. Or maybe you've come to hear some stunning news that just puts everything in a warp, leaves you in a daze and in a search for answers. One thing that they do figure out is that their families were not killed, they were kidnapped. And they can determine that because there's no signs of death. There's no bones, there's no bodies. But everyone and everything of value is gone, and everything else is burnt to ashes. All of the buildings, the houses, the gates, much of that would have had wood construction. And even things not made out of wood, clay walls, clay brick would have been damaged by the fire, become too brittle. Almost everything was going to have to be rebuilt. I'll say more about the emotional toll this made on them in a little bit, but at this point I want you to note some important points of contact in the book between David and Saul. And some ironies. David had just gotten out of getting sucked into a war. He was freed from that responsibility, released from the Philistine theater, but he comes home and finds himself on the verge of another war. Isn't that the way life often goes? From one tragedy that you think you're done with into another of the same kind. And think about also the contrast between David and Saul here. Both of these men are facing battles. You might recall that chapter 28, the story of Saul going to the medium at Endor to try to talk to Samuel, uh, that that event was sort of a fast forward. And then chapter 29 went backwards in time. Now chapters 30 and 28 are occurring at almost exactly the same time. Around the same time that Saul is seeking counsel from a witch, David is seeking counsel from the Lord. About the same time that Saul is about to enter into battle against the Philistines, David is about to enter into battle against the Amalekites. There's even some little foreshadowing of it here. For instance, the word that's used that says that they made a raid in verse 1, literally they stripped the city. Same word that will be used to describe what the Philistines do to Saul's dead body in the next chapter. Three times chapter 30 tells us that the city was burned with fire, reduced to ashes, which foreshadows what the Philistines will do to the body of Saul and his sons. It will be burned. They're both facing some similar issues, but the outcomes are going to be dramatically different. None of those points of comparison are obvious at this moment because all that David and his company know is this misery of, m- of the moment. Consider now in verses 4 to 5 the whiplash, how their hearts are torn. The fourth verse says, Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. David and these 600 men are experiencing an emotional whiplash. I mean, they've gone from a huge relief at the end of chapter 29 to this terrible 
victim status, where another army has wiped them clean. Think about all the expectations they had on that 55-mile walk home, about getting home to their wives and their kids and having some R&R, enjoying peace time, getting out of that pickle that they were in, reuniting with loved ones. They've been traveling for days and they're road-weary, Oh, but that's nothing compared to the grief that meets them when they get home. Ralph Davis describes it this way. A marvelous escape, a moment to breathe, a grand relief, only to be thrown into the pit again. Better to have never been lifted out of the slop than to be lifted out only to be dashed into it again. Uh, Don't be surprised, beloved, when your victories when your answers to prayer are quickly followed by other sorrows. Sometimes there are seasons of life where tragedy like this comes and comes and comes. Sometimes the sorrows of our life feel sort of like the, 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 the slogan for Morton Salt. Remember that? When it rains, it pours. Ralph Davis humorously said, sometimes we're tempted to add a phrase to Psalm 30, verse 5. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's a precious verse. So sometimes we're tempted to add a line to it. After that, joy comes in the morning and disaster strikes next afternoon. (laughs) Hmm. They lifted their voices and wept. They cried loudly uh, to the point where they couldn't even vocalize it anymore. Imagine the misery as they think about some several thousand people missing. You think about this now, 600 men, most of these men are married. A good number of them are going to have children, multiple children, 600 times whatever. You're looking at 2,000, 3,000 people gone? This is sort of like the agony of Job multiplied by 600 So overwhelming was the discovery, Robert Bergen says, that David and his men, some of the toughest men on the planet, wept until they were exhausted. And David is just as affected as everyone else. We're told that his family had suffered loss. He has two wives who are named here who have been dragged off to become slaves. He, he really, his first wife had been Michal, Saul's daughter. He lost her because Saul married her off to somebody else. And then David marries Abigail, and at some point he uh, also enters into another marriage. And we've shared before about those multiple marriages are not David at his best, but nonetheless, these are real marriages, though the biblical pattern's not been well followed. There's nonetheless real grief. And then we come to the next verse, and we find that David is in jeopardy of losing some other things. He's in jeopardy of losing his men's loyalty and even his own life. We've had black ash and whiplash, and then there's backlash when their loyalty is tested in verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. Greatly distressed, it says David was. Literally, it was very narrow for David. 
We have a saying like that. He was in a tight spot. It's the same phrase that Saul used in chapter 28, verse 15, when the spirit of Samuel says, why have you disturbed my rest? And Saul says, well, I'm, I'm in great distress. It's really ironic that it's possible that that interview that Saul has with Samuel and this experience that David has with his men could be happening within 24 hours of each other. By the way, tonight we're going to be talking about where was Samuel? Uh, was he in heaven? Was he in Abraham's bosom? How do we understand that? That's what the topic is this evening. There are many parallels between what Saul does and what David does, but instead of seeking the Lord through a witch, David is going to turn to the Lord through prayer and through a priest that God has ordained. David is in the same boat with everyone else, you know, with these men who've suffered loss, and yet he's in a unique position of leadership, and his men are considering mutiny. I mean, it was his decision to go live with the Philistines 16 months earlier. They were following him. It wasn't a, a, an idea of theirs. That fiasco with the Philistines has led to another fiasco. If, if David had just trusted God more a year and a half earlier, instead of leaning on his own understanding, these people would not have been dragged through the misery along with him. And if this is true, you know, when you are in leadership and you make fleshly decisions, carnal choices, ungodly reactions, they have multiplied effects. It's true within the family, and so this is why Apostle Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. It's true of husbands with their wives. It's true of bosses with the people who work under them. It's true of people in leadership in church, pastors and so forth. When we make decisions or reactions according to the flesh, the impact is multiplied. Now, that doesn't justify picking up stones. So if you're unhappy with me, please leave your stones outside. Uh, <laughs> but David's men are embittered, literally, for bitter was the soul of all the people, each one. When David assembled this misfit crew back in chapter 22, we're told that these were people on the margin. Many of them were upset with the way things were being handled in the realm. And those men, though, had come with David a long, long way. They had been through a lot. They had gained things. They had won things. And now they see everything that they'd gained lost. All they have is the stuff they're dragging around. And at this point, they don't have any certainty that they'll get anything back. And the only one they can think to blame is David. Not looking so good for the promised one. So now we come to verses, at the end of verse 6 through verse 10, where we see spiritual strengthening in God. It, it really begins in the end of verse 6 where there is encouragement. David's strength in God is spoken of at the end of verse 6. Look at the end of that verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What an encouraging text that is. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, it's even shorter than this. In the Hebrew Bible, it is four words. 
four words, but they speak volumes. And they invite us to come and meditate on what that meant. It's the first time we've seen David actively fellowshipping in the things of God for some time, since about chapter 26. It seems as though that David is renewing his trust in God's promises. This whole experience of running from Saul for what's been several years now was an exercise of patience, and at some points David's faith had faults. He never forsook the Lord, but sometimes he leaned on his own understanding as he had been for this last year and a half. Yes, his faith had faults, but he had not defaulted on it. He strengthens himself in the Lord. In the previous, in verse 4, we're told that everyone, as they were mourning, they were without strength. Saul, after God spoke to him through Samuel's spirit, it says that he had no strength left in him. Another comparison between these men. But David finds the strength that was lost. In fact, he gains a strength he did not have before, a spiritual strength. This kind of language has been used about David earlier. In chapter 23, verse 16, we're told Jonathan's son arose and, I'm sorry, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Literally, strengthened his hand in God. John Woodhouse describes it, that here David found strength again and the one who had promised that he would be king over Israel. The strength David found was trust in God's promise. It's what we call faith. That's what it means that he strengthened himself in God. How do we strengthen ourselves in God? Well, let's say some things that, we, that it isn't. It's not a simple matter of toggling a switch that you've been living on your own, leaning on your own understanding, and now just flip, now I'm going to change. Faith doesn't really work that way. It's not like flipping a switch or rubbing a genie's lamp either. It's not about saying magic words that impress God. It's, it's not also about venting and lamenting, though there is a place for that. There can be benefit to that. We see it in the Psalms. But just lamenting about things, even lamenting in prayer, is not the same thing as having faith. There are people I know that go through troubles, and they lament a lot, and they complain to God a lot, but they never seem to engage God in faith, or not, at least not much. Strengthening ourselves in God is about meditating on the relationship we have through, with Him based on His promises. And for the Christian, that means reflecting on what the gospel has done for us. How the gospel has united us with God, dealt with the problem of our sins that had separated us from God, and has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Strengthening ourself in God means bathing our souls in the promises of the gospel. David is encouraging himself as he thinks of the promises that have been made to him over the years that God has a plan for him and it's not done yet. And so we encourage ourselves when we think about the promises made to us through Jesus Christ. David took to heart all that had been promised him and so we should learn to take to heart all the things that Christ has promised us.
There's encouragement here at the end of verse 6. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's enlightenment. As Yahweh gives his word to David for the first time in almost years. Verse 7, Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David has been meditating on the promises made to him, but he wants insight also as to what his next course of action ought to be. He, he doesn't know who took his people and stuff, where they went. One thing that Saul couldn't do anymore was ask the priests to help him get in touch with God. And why was that? <laughs> well, he had killed all of the high priest family, except for this one high priest member, family member who is there, Abiathar, the new high priest. As the high priest, Abiathar would have worn, uh, would have had an ephod, like the top garment you see here, that had uh, stitched into it these very precious stones, each representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And behind that was a pocket. And in that pocket is where was kept the urim and the thunim. Perhaps some kind of a stones of decision that could be cast somewhat like lots. And it always gave a right answer. Unlike when you cast dice and things like that. Eh, well, who knows? It's a God superintended the process so that you could get yes, no answers that were infallible. And so you see David asking questions that are basically yes, no questions. And David asked Abiathar for this help again around the same time Saul is talking to a witch. David seeks the Lord through what were in Old Testament times proper means. So in verse 8, David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And we would assume that Abiathar casts these lots within the pocket and gets out a yes answer. And Abiathar, the Lord will say through him in essence, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. And the second question, you will surely rescue them. The first question is about permission. Should I do this? The second question is about success. Will it work? Should I pursue this raiding band? Will I overtake them? As one version puts it. And for the first time in a long time, there's good news. News from God that things are going to turn around. Everything up to this verse, has sounded pretty bad. <laughs> They've had this three-day grueling journey. They discovered that there'd been a raid and kidnapping and looting. The people are in despair. They're close to mutiny. But God assures them all will be well if they trust Him. They don't even know how big this group was that took off their people. I mean, it has to be a fairly you know, large size. If they're going to drag away, let's say, 2,000 people, it's got to be a pretty significant military force. But David is going to trust God, and so will his men. He acts on this new word from the Lord. You and I are not to be looking for new words from God because we have received the completed scriptures and as we look through God's Word in communion with our living Savior, we find so much wisdom that we can apply to life. You and I don't have a priest we need to go to either. We don't have an Abiathar that we need to go find. 
um, as our intermediary. We do have a priest, I should say, though. And it's not me or Pastor Ed or Pastor Balt or any of our elders or deacons. No, the priest we go through is the Lord Jesus. As Hebrews put it in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ralph Davis uh, describing this, our access to God's help through Jesus is so wise when he says this. He says, we may not get exact answers to our questions, but we will find grace to help which we usually need more than answers <laughs> he says i don't often need information i need endurance i don't need to know i don't need to know something i need to stay on my feet use your priest he says use your access it's part of strengthening yourself in yahweh your god Well, we've seen encouragement and enlightenment, and now in verses 9 and 10, there's engagement as the men begin their march for rescue. Verse 9, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remain. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remain behind. Everyone has united behind the newly encouraged David. They are trusting in the Word of God as he did, but they have some limitations. Uh, they're they're kind of guessing where to go. God didn't tell them what direction to go. He basically just tells them to go with the thought that in one way or another, God is going to guide them as they go. They head out in a logical direction, which is to the southeast, Maybe there were some signs of foot traffic. Uh, it's hard to say, but they head down toward the brook, brook Besor. You can see on the map there, there's Ziklag up at the top of the map. And about 12 to 15 miles, depending on where they pick it up, is that brook Besor. Now, don't, don't misunderstand brook Besor like one of these little washes that we have here in Southern California. It's not something like that. This is a major waterway. It's a seasonal river. Sometimes it is flooded uh, very high, and other times it's very low. It is one of the widest, deepest seasonal river gorges in all of southern Israel. It, um, the waterway sits in a deep ravine that at some points is 300 to 400 feet wide. When you get down to the water itself, there's very steep sides that would require a lot of agility to travel. So there's these men who come down here, and they are... They're exhausted. The Hebrew term is something like they were dead tired. And, and I'm not being euphemistic. That's actually what the word means, dead tired. They've already been marching for three days from the north, 55 miles. Now they've marched another 15 miles. That's a full day's march. And they're going through rugged country, and they get to this really wide, difficult-to-traverse 
spot, and some of them are so physically fatigued and emotionally fatigued, they had no supplies at home to replenish what they had. And a third of his military force cannot continue. 200 of them cannot go on. So they set up camp along the riverbed. There they will stay as long as they need to guard what little they have left. The other 400, though, say we can go. And apparently they head further down the brook looking for signs of their invaders. Notice how these men had to change their plan. They had to adapt, adapt to the circumstances. But they don't lose faith. I mean, you know, you're assuming that the army that had come through was really big, maybe a couple thousand. And now we just lost a third of our military unit? Maybe we should just stop. Maybe we should do something else other than... But no, they don't lose faith. They believe in the promise that God had made through the priest. You will succeed. You will get it all back. And David, who had taken down a giant with a small stone, knows that God can bring a victory even with a smaller army. Sometimes it seems like what God gives you to work with isn't enough. Ever feel that way? But remember, that's exactly what Goliath thought <laughs> right before something else came into his mind. <laughs> well, now we come closer to the battle as God makes some providential provision for rescue in verses 11 through 20. There is a discovery that is made, some timely finding of facts in verses 11 through 16. Intelligence is going to be discovered from a slave. Verse 11 says, Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate. And they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins. And he ate. Then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten or drunk water for three days and three nights. Now this all sounds a little bit like happenstance, but it's really not just a coincidence. This is the hand of providence. God had given uh, guidance to David through a direct word of revelation earlier, and now he's going to give him direction through providence through the sovereign working of events. This is not a miracle, it's a sovereign providential act. As they move along, probably going along the brook Besor, they find this discarded slave left to die in the bush. David and his men have compassion on him because uh, this is a man as a slave who was likely enslaved uh, you know, from some other kind of war. A lot of the slaves in the ancient world were captors of war. Instead of annihilating the enemy, you might just uh, turn them into, into slaves. He's, he's an Egyptian. He's definitely a man out of place. In addition to showing kindness, though, this situation is going to end up being rich in intel. Remember how earlier Saul was doing, he had little ears out there. He would get intel, but he didn't have divine help. David gets intel with divine help. It's a little providence here, but it makes such a big difference. 
You know, that's often the way it is in life. Ralph Davis says, little providences make big differences. We need to learn to appreciate how God sovereignly orchestrates things according to the counsel of his own will. They give him some basic water and bread, and then they give him some high-energy foods. We're told that they give him some fig cakes and bunches of raisins. Fig cake is probably uh, figs that they might have been skinned and then they've been pressed down into little patties. So they're going to be extra dense in their calories. Um, People who travel through the desert, these are common foodstuffs that you get at oases. You've been traveling for some time and then you get to the oasis and you would fill up on this sort of thing. Uh, Sometimes armies, like David's, would keep these things in store when they got particularly weak. They would uh, munch on on these things to give them a boost. It's kind of an interesting amount of detail we're given here about this guy. I mean, this is quite a bit of information. As I, as I look at my Bible on, on one page, it's like a third of an entire page. It's about the encounter with this slave and the food they gave him and the conversation that they have. It's, it's a curious amount of detail. One thing it's doing is showing us how David is sensitive to the law because the law gave specific commandments about how you're to treat slaves who have been discarded that you're to show compassion, and particularly how you're supposed to treat aliens. Remember, God said to Israel, you shall, you know, not take advantage of the alien in your midst, for you too were a stranger in a foreign land. In Egypt, no less. And here's an Egyptian receiving compassion that the law requires. The the law also says that you're not to return a runaway slave to his master. And it seems that David will honor that as well. So this little story is painting for us how David is getting in line with God's word, unlike Saul, who is breaking God's law left and right. This is also the second meal we've had in a couple chapters. <laughs> Do you remember uh, what, what the medium at Endor does for Saul? She makes him this big, lavish meal to try to replenish his strength. What a last supper cooked by a witch. But here's David giving a meal of compassion to a man who is without strength, rejuvenating him. The sugars and those figs and raisins would prove to be rejuvenating. Maybe he wasn't as sick as his master thought he was if he just needed some food and water to revive. You know, those Amalekites, don't feel bad for them, by the way. I mean, this is a dirty, rotten thing they did to this guy. Uh, They had plenty of food. They just raided all of this stuff, but apparently he was a bit sick and going too slow, so they just leave him behind. In the 13th verse, we see David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Herathites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Now the intel begins to pour in. They, they learn who raided them, the Amalekites. They learn how long ago they raided them, at least three days earlier. Now, now think back now. <laughs> how long did David's men take to travel down from the north? Three days. So about the time that King Akish told them, you can leave, about that time their home is being raided. 
they are leaving one problem and unbeknownst to them, another one is starting right at the very same time. That is life. And death sometimes. He tells them that they've been out in the Negev. This is an aerial shot of this southern desert region. Throughout these southern deserts were various villages and tribes that lived. The Carathites are mentioned who are a people who are related to the Philistines. Their name uh, actually comes from the name of the island Crete. They were descendants of the ancient Minoans, had moved to Canaan like the Philistines had. They had been raided, and then we're told that it, the, the Negev of Judah, there were cities and, tri uh, and tribal lands governed by the people of Judah. They raided those. They went into the region of Caleb. Caleb was a key family in the tribe of Judah. This was Abigail's clan, was from Caleb. And then the last place they mention, Ziklag. And this place they treated with special contempt. The Hebrew text puts it, and Ziklag, we burn with fire. It's the only one that they burn to the ground, getting David back. In the 15th verse, David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. David and the slave work out an understanding uh, and we're not told David's verbal response, but the physical response that follows indicates to us that David gave him an oath that he would, in fact, free him, or at the very least, not return him to be a slave of his old master. David is putting confidence in a man that he has known for less than an hour. <laughs> the whole mission hinges on whether this slave is telling the truth or not. But David knew from God that God was going to orchestrate events, and so he trusts that this is what the Lord has ordained. And the last verse we'll look at today is the 16th verse, where there's a reconnaissance of the camp. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. The slave knows where they had come from and likely what their plan, where their plans were to return to. And they get to some spot out there in the Negev and it's just a big unorganized mess. This army that normally would be disciplined with they setting up their tents in a certain way and you got your guards and you know people posted around the perimeter of the camp. None of that's happening. They are just cutting loose, partying, reveling. The term dancing that's used here is actually a more generic word that it, it's more than just having a foot function. Uh, this, is, this is a word for the way people behave at holidays and all the things associated with that. Kind of reminds you about the children of Israel on the backside of Sinai when Moses came off the mount with the, with the Ten Commandments and the people were partying and even worshiping false gods. Unlike the slave who was left to starve, the Amalekites are feasting and partying. And the way that they are spread out like this makes it a perfect time to attack. They take reconnaissance of it, and the verses that we'll begin to look at next time 
show us how God brings them the victory, even though they were greatly outnumbered in comparison to the troops that were there. Next time, we'll see more about uh, this and the recovery, the total rout and the rescue that experiences. And then verses 21 to 31, the last part of the story, is this great generosity David has as they bring back the spoils of war. Everyone gets back their family members that were lost and their stuff that was lost. And there's more stuff. And David shares it. He shares it even with the men who stayed back by the stuff at the brook. The men who didn't fight, they get an equal share because they couldn't have done what they did without them watching all that stuff. And then he shares it with cities of Judah. And he's sort of coming into the position of being a ruler, showing how God is leading him and can provide for them through him. But where we leave the story at this point, David still doesn't know how things are going to turn out. One thing he is certain about, though, is he has the Lord. And I'm going to close with a quote from Ian McLaren. Ian McLaren was a great Scottish preacher uh, a little bit after Spurgeon's time. And he says about this story, Everything else was gone. His property was carried off by raiders. His home was smoldering embers. But the Amalekites had not stolen God from him. Though he could no longer say, My house, my city, my possessions, he could say, my God. Whatever else we lose, as long as we have him, we are rich. And whatever else we possess, we are poor as long as we have not him. God is enough, whatever else may go. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this story, this true story of your grace to David, your servant who faltered in his faith in many ways, but is back on track, heeding your word, seeking your face, doing your will. Encourage us, Lord, that in our trials and troubles that you are still at work, that no matter what we may seem to have lost, we cannot lose you. For you are our everlasting possession. You are our heritage that endures forever. And you have a sovereign plan that is ordained to bring about good, to work all things together for good. According to your promise, to those who have been called according to your purpose. Thank you, Father, for never forsaking your purposes and never forsaking your people. And so may we be strengthened in you, our God, this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.